You're listening to Kaleidoscope, Reflections on Islam, a podcast sponsored by the Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies at Stanford University, dedicated to exploring how people engage with Islam and Muslims today. I'm your host, Ambreen Bhatti. Michael Brown, Tanisha Anderson, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray. My heart hurts saying the names of black people who've died at the hands of the police. As an American, as a parent, a wife, a person of color and a person of conscience, I know it's important for me to speak out, to do what I can to make this stop. And as a person of faith, Yes, as a person of faith, because I've been raised to believe that my faith commands me to stand up for justice. But what does that really mean? What does that look like? What should it look like? My guest today, Zain Abdullah, a recent visitor to Stanford, has an idea about where we might turn for some answers. I teach at Temple University. I'm associate professor of religion and society and Islamic studies. Um, trained as an anthropologist, so I am interested in talking to real people. <laughs> so I do cultural anthropology, um, and so again, I'm, I'm really interested in people's experiences on the ground and their encounters with one, one, one another and the ways in which they are able to sort of negotiate their space, negotiate, um, in this case, negotiate their, their multiple identities. For me, the Nation of Islam uh, has been the kind of organization that has been grappling with issues of orthodoxy. What does it mean to be authentically a Muslim? Uh, they've also um, dealt head-on with issues of race. And so for me, um, that's, uh, I think, the kind of uh, population that would demonstrate for me how race and religion inform one another um, and sort of when are they mutually exclusive sort of parsed out, uh, at the same time, when do they overlap? And when they do overlap, what does that look like? To better understand this, he's looking at Temple 25 in Newark, New Jersey, as one of the Nation of Islam's most notable mosques. Part of the reason I decided to do this was uh, because when people talked about the Nation of Islam, they talked about it in such amorphous terms, right? And so they would say, well, the nation does this, the nation believes that. And I think with, for an organization that has, or that were had over 100 different temples abroad throughout the country, they had a, a national education system, uh, you can't talk about that uh, you know, in very normative ways. You have, to, you have to really nuance it. You have to really understand the relationship between what was going on uh, um, at the center, at the metropole, and then what's going on at the satellite level. I'm really interested in uh, the 1960s in Newark. Uh, I might, uh, well, I've been actually gathering information on, on uh, a few years before it because it kind of starts in the, the mid-50s, but the real active years, though, of the nation and the building of the temple and uh, the ways in which um, uh, what the, the, the nation members represented for, for Newarkers was amazing. In other words, they, they, they represented this kind of fearlessness um, the FOI, which is the, the, the all-male paramilitary unit of the, of the Nation of Islam, um, would, would confront the, the, the police and police brutality in ways where 
where, where, where other New Yorkers just looked on in awe. Uh, because you, typically, um, uh, as, as one respondent said to me, um, when the white police officers would come around, everyone would just scatter. The nation members would stand strong, stand there and confront. Uh, they would challenge. Um, and so I think what that meant for people was that they were able to witness their salvation they, uh, and the ways in which these members embodied what it meant to be a black dignified, but also... Uh, uh, a kind of conscientious person, a person who who, who sort of embraced uh, a religiosity, right? Um, and so, like those sorts of things were happening, and they were happening somewhat around the, the country. Um, um, so again, so the period I'm looking for, I'm looking to investigate, is this 1960s period. It's a it's a period um, before what uh, Thomas Wolfe called the, the the me decade, right? The me decade. So the me decade is this. It's the 1970s period when uh, basically some of the, 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 the larger grassroots movements are coming to an end. Uh, black power is waning. Uh, the Vietnam War is, is coming to an end. This kind of group politics is coming. What's being ushered in at that point are sort of like uh, personal philosophies, um, a kind of a kind of attention to uh, uh, an attention on the individual, a kind of way of, of sort of enhancing the self, as it were. Um, that kind of individualism, though, uh, uh, just was, was anathema to sort of the, the, what was happening in the, in the 1960s, right? The 1960s was about a kind of, a kind of uh, peoplehood. And so I'm interested, again, in how people were galvanizing themselves. How were they mobilizing? Um, and again, always, what, what role does one's sense of Islam have to do with that? How were they thinking about Islam? What kind of Islam were they thinking about? Why did that matter? How did that matter? The project is a work in progress, so to really understand how people were thinking about Islam in the fight against police brutality in the 1960s, we'll have to wait for Dr. Abdullah's book. But that question he asks about the role of one's sense of Islam, that really struck me, here, now, in 2015. Those people I mentioned, they were all killed in the last year. Where is the nation now? The nation was reconstituted under... Uh, Mr. Louis Farrakhan, and um, initially, upon the death of uh, Elijah Muhammad in 1975, uh, Farrakhan was positioned to continue on with Imam uh, Warthadim Muhammad, who was uh, Elijah Muhammad's seventh son. Um, the the legend, as the legend goes, um, Elijah Muhammad's son Warthadim Muhammad. Um, was was um, prophesized, as they say, uh, to to lead the community into a different version of Islam, um, a different iteration of, of what it meant to be a Muslim. Um, after about two years or so, Farrakhan decided to uh, go his own way because he believed that uh, Imam Muhammad did not uh, was not following the the teachings correctly. Um, or religiously, of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Um, so, so Farrakhan, for the most part, has tried to honor the role of, of Elijah Muhammad, um, the, the spirit of the teachings at least, if nothing else. Um, and so his rhetoric is still about black liberation, is still about the black struggle, but it's also definitely, uh, it definitely pays attention to and sort of 
embodies the, the kind of Islamic ethic as well. In other words, they're, they're, they're interested in what it means to be moral, but along Islamic lines, though. At this point, uh, I think the question is, though, for someone like Farrakhan, who is now um, 80 years old, um, where do we go from here? When, he's, when his work is done and when he passes on, uh, where is the, the voice of black descent coming from sort of an Islamic place? In other words, I mean, whether you agree with his politics, whether you agree with his Islamic perspective is one thing, but still he represents a voice of dissent, especially a voice that, 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 uh, that, that references Islam in some way, shape or form, right? In other words, he's engaged with the Muslim world. He's engaged with Muslims. I mean, in fact, uh, several weeks ago, um, he attended uh, Juma prayer in Philadelphia, you know. Um, I mean, so so he is a part of the of the Islamic um, enterprise, right? He's a, he's a part of Islam in that sense. So I think his his audience, for the most part, is sort of the, the larger African American public. Um, I think um, that definitely African American Muslims, Sunni or not, are listening to him. Whether they agree is, is a different issue, but I think they're definitely listening to him. Um, some are, especially young people who are Sunni Muslims, are joining him. I have a student who, um, young African-American Sunni Muslim, and she came to me uh, just troubled, thinking uh, about being a Muslim and what it means to be a Muslim, but also experiencing and seeing um, a sort of assault on, on black life. And so for her, she didn't see where, where traditional Muslims were sort of addressing these kinds of issues. But she saw where Farrakhan was, right? And still at the same time, he was at least espousing some kind of Islamic rhetoric. In that sense, uh, she felt that, all right, so still spiritually, um, he, he's, he's, he's involved in a kind of Islamic sensibility. Uh, and so she, she really was, was troubled because she was uh, contemplating leaving Sunni Islam and joining the Nation of Islam. Um, that was a tough conversation because I wasn't really sure um, how to guide her, what to say to her, how to console her. Um, because she's right. You know, we don't see uh, Sunni Muslims really uh, addressing oppression in the ways in which uh, the Quran would advocate. Malcolm, uh, that was his, his dilemma. His dilemma is, was about, well, how do you reconcile? Uh, a struggle for black rights or for human rights, um, and at the same time, uh, how do you um, sort of embrace or practice a kind of Islamic morality when your when your morality doesn't doesn't bring you to sort of fight on the side of the oppressed, right? How do you reconcile that, right? What kind of morality is that, right? I think and so Malcolm definitely was 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 addressing that. Um, even th the night before he died, that was one of his letters that he wrote actually to Sayyid Ramadan, uh, uh, sort of questioning him about this, especially because Sayyid Ramadan, as a Sunni Muslim, was trying to get him to drop racial politics, not to worry about that. They, that just being a good Muslim would sort of handle that, would erase that problem. Malcolm would have none of it. Dr. Abdullah, by the way, came out of the Sunni Muslim tradition, though these days he'd rather leave the labels aside. 
So I asked him what he meant when he said, we don't see Sunni Muslims really addressing oppression in the ways in which the Quran would advocate. Did he think that Sunni Muslims fall down on race? I do, definitely, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. I think one of the problems is that Muslims have, in order to sort of present themselves uh, as acceptable to mainstream America or, or, or the West, uh, they actually, I think, have adopted this, this, this colorblind ideology, this kind of universalism that I think, I think would be hard-pressed to really find in the Quran itself, right? Um, I mean, the Quran grapples with race, right? It, it grapples with, uh, it's very transparent about, about race. Um, so I'm not sure where, besides the fact that Muslims are definitely um, uh, trying to present themselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis modernity and notions of sort of acceptance and integration and all this, as 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 uh, as pleasing Muslims, as 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 people who are are who, who can get along with with others and and all of this, and not agitate and not right interrogate, and so I think definitely that um, Sunni Muslims I think are hampered by the attempt to advocate for a colorblind ideology when it comes to race and discrimination. He's right, I think, in many ways. It's not enough to say that Islam commands Muslims to stand up for justice. It's not that that isn't true, it's that it's important to say and do more. For all American Muslims to explore how we think about race. For us to really and truly engage race. That's happening with efforts like the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative and Muslims for Ferguson, but there's so much more to do. So what else will it take? Here's Dr. Abdullah again. I think, I think the first thing is to is to educate themselves about um, oppressed populations uh, because again I mean Muslims themselves are oppressed absolutely but I think what's important is to uh, to sort of understand um, other cultures and it says um, right and so so and what this means is is that yeah and so we've created you or God has created you in these various uh, sort of large, large and small divisions, right? Uh, but the word litaarafu comes from the word marifa or orf, right? And so what this means is that uh, it's not really about just knowing the other person; it's being intimate with them, is really understanding the culture, knowing the custom, understanding what makes them hurt, uh, understanding what makes them laugh. And so I think so. I just think that the verse is. Is, is apropos, I think is brilliant, because what it says is that if, if we're going to understand our, our own humanity, we have to understand the culture of others intimately, not just um, uh, what they, uh, how they've been perceived or how they've been portrayed by a larger society, uh, but, you actually, but actually, actually sort of engage them. You know, Islam is not, Islam does not intend for these issues around human difference uh, to, to, to be a non-issue. I think the Quran intends for it to be an issue. I think what's interesting about the verse as well is that um, it's about, it's, it was providential, right? And so in other words, it's not that the Quran is saying that these, these human differences exist. The Quran says that, you know, in Ya'ayuhannas inna khalaqnakum min min 
words, so 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 God then creates the 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 the, the origin of human of, of human differences. Um, that then he sort of proliferates that. So the point becomes so if this is something that 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 is almost a divine mandate, then we should definitely take care to understand what that means. How do we how do we how do we sort of um, how do we uh, tap into that human diversity as a real viable resource for reconciliation, for um, for understanding, for the uh, uh, for, for dispensing justice, for getting along? Um, so I think what's important then is to tap into the notion of human diversity, as the Quran sort of advocates. Um, as a resource for for living better. To tap into the notion of human diversity as a resource for living better. To move beyond saying that Islam makes us all equal and to actually working towards that by recognizing and appreciating our differences. I really like that. For more of Dr. Abdullah's work, Visit zaineabdullah.com, that's Z-A-I-N-A-B-D-U-L-L-A-H.com, or visit our website. Sincere thanks to Dr. Abdullah for his time, to the Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies for bringing him to Stanford and for supporting this podcast, and to you, our listeners. Tweet us at Kaleido underscore show, or find us on Facebook to share your thoughts and ideas. Till next time.